Well, I'm so glad to be with you this morning. And now we come to the time in our service where we're going to look at God's word together. And we're going to spend this time now in the hearing of God's word. And so you can turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 23, Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 32. Luke chapter 23, verses 30, uh, 26 through 32. And while you're turning there, I want to let you know that today is also Steadfast Community Church's first birthday. <clears throat> and um, I think it's an amazing thing that on the one-year anniversary of the church that we sent out, the group of people from this church, we are now of celebrating ascending of a missionary to an unreached people group. We just keep giving our people away, and uh, I don't like it. Um, no, I, I love it. And um, so if you get a chance, reach out to Josh Seal. Uh, they've, been, they've been preparing for this morning for a, a couple of weeks now. Um, their community, their Bible teaching, the outreach, uh, their evangelistic efforts, uh, it's just incredible to watch them grow as a church. And so, again, reach out to them and congratulate them this morning as they celebrate one year. I did want to also mention, um, as you're turning to the scriptures, just the men re men's retreat would just really encourage you to sign up. Um, and, uh, you know, when we planted this church, the two desires of my heart was Number one, to teach the Bible, and then number two, to develop men. And the reason being, um, we are complementarianists, meaning that uh, each gender has a unique and distinct role that God has given them um, in the scriptures. And those roles complement each other. Not, they're not the same, and one should not aspire for the other. And there's these distinct roles, and it's obvious and men are given the responsibility to lead. And so as the men go, so the family goes, and so the church goes. Uh, you don't have any time to, or any authority to question that. It's pretty obvious from the scriptures that the men are to be the leaders. And so, again, as they go, the family goes, and, and so the church goes. And so... We want men who are focused on Christ. We want men who know clearly what the Bible teaches. We want men whose lives are free from the patterns of sin that so easily entangle. We want men who know how to lead their families. We want men who are not distracted by the lures of, these, of, of the world, uh, the success and, and all that that usually lures men away from the church and from the family. We want men to know how to lead in the church. And we want men who do so consistently and faithfully. And when you do that, when you see that, when we see that, we will see strong families, we will see healthy families, and we will see healthy, uh, a healthy church. When you have men who lead within the body of Christ, um, that church is pretty stable. When you have men who know doctrine and who are obedient and who are leading their families and who protect against error and gossip and falsehood, you have a church that's pretty stable. 
And so we want men who are focused on the right things, not focused on themselves or success or sin or kind of subtly focused on other priorities. We want men who are strong. We don't want men who surrender their roles to lead their families or the church because when you have that, you'll have a church that's very weak and deficient, families who are weak and deficient, and they're unstable and unhealthy, and they will kind of suffer from a a spiritual AIDS of sort. There just can be any number of different sicknesses that can just attack, and because of its weak immune system, the church or the family will just die. And so this this is what happens when we see men who abdicate the roles. And so we want to do everything we can to make a difference in helping men to lead. We want to make sure that we can help men thrive. We want strong, stable men who are spiritually leading their homes, who know the scriptures, who can counsel, who can care for, who can minister to, who can help protect, who know what's going on in the dangers around them. And so we try to give focused times where we can develop men spiritually. And one of these focused times is going to be this coming up men's retreat, where we'll teach you what's called biblical hermeneutics, which is how to study the word of God and to do so rightly. It's the study of studying the word of God. Didn't know that you can study studying, huh? But there's a right way to study the word and there's a wrong way. And so we want to help you men do that. So if I were you, I would flock to Jeff after this service, jump on his back, find his sheet of paper that he has his signups, or Jack, Jack, better do that to Jack, but Jeff's been busy. Do that to Jack and get your name on that sheet and come join us for a couple of days so we can fellowship together and grow in our faith. So let's move to the text. We've got a lot of work to do today. Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 32. That's the text for today. I'm going to read down to 43, okay? 43, and um, let's see how far we can get. Here we go. Luke chapter 23, verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people of women and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, weep, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming When they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? Two other criminals, uh, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. Verse 33, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, 
If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. What a text. Now, what we're seeing in this passage in verses 26 through 32 is Jesus's journey to the cross. We're seeing in this section, verses 26 through 32, within the larger section that I just read, Jesus' journey to the cross. Jesus here is led less than a half a mile to a place where he will be crucified. And you you see that this is is the um, journey to where he will be crucified. We've seen the journey narrative right, from his, from his journey to Jerusalem, and perhaps this is better called the journey narrative, because we've seen him train his disciples along that journey, that was a long journey, um, to Jerusalem, but here's his short, concise journey, but this journey is now to his death. This is the true journey narrative, and you can see this for yourselves, that this is what is taking place within these verses, because watch this now, look at verse 26, as they led him away, away from where? Pilate's palace. And then now look at verse 33. That's where our section will pick up next time. So our section ends in verse 32. So look at verse 33. It says, and when they came to the place that is called the skull there, they crucified him. So they led him away from Pilate's They arrive and they're going to crucify him, verse 33. So right here in between these verses, I mean, it's just obvious. You can see it for yourself and it's just proven that this is what we're seeing. This is the journey from Pilate to to Golgotha, to the place of the skull, to where Jesus will be crucified. So right now, what we're seeing in this section is the journey there. This is the journey to the cross. But interestingly, when we look at this, The way Luke moves us through this narrative is incredibly interesting because he doesn't move us along this journey through giving us geographical points of reference. He doesn't move us through this journey to the cross through referring to time, points of time. If you look closely at this, we can see clearly this is the journey from Pilate to the cross, and he moves us through this narrative by moving us through people, by moving us through groups of people, from person to person, from group to group. And so uh, as he moves through these people, he's on the journey, and he's pointing out, Luke is, the people who are with Jesus on the way to the cross. And so with these two aspects, clearly front and center, the journey and the people I've entitled the message, The Crucifixion Part One, The Journey and Those Who Join. The Journey and Those Who Join, because that's exactly what we are seeing. That's Luke's point here in this narrative. This is the journey 
to the cross, and we are given the people who join in this. Now, the reason for me giving you this first heading, we got to do a little bit of just uh, just preparatory work for the next month or so, and I've got to do this now. So the reason for giving this first heading, the crucifixion part one, is because all of these sections are going to have to be taken together or else they lose the force. They, they lose the power. 26 through 42, which is why I read it, has to be taken together because it's, a, it's, it's the entire story of the crucifixion. Without taking this together, it loses its force. And so 26 through, 40, through, through 32, let me tell you, that's the literary unit we're in. Now, let me just take a, a little rabbit trail to just help you, okay? A literary unit, you might wonder, how do I decide where to start and stop each week, okay, as we're reading the scriptures? Well, the literary unit is a unit of, of text in which before or after, the main point switches. Okay, so that's, so in a simplistic, very condensed way, if I were to say, you know, man, uh, I love to drink coffee. Um, did you know that Starbucks X, Y, and Z, right? In that very simplistic example, my main point switched from me loving coffee to some point about the coffee shop. Well, that's a very condensed version because that's two sentences, right? And um, it's overly simplified. But the main point of what I'm saying changes. And so the writer, through the Holy Spirit, in a number of sentences makes a main point within a section of Scripture. And at some point, that point changes. And that's where that unit ends. And there doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that there's not more to be learned within that section. Psalm 119.97 says, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation day and night. I mean, you can meditate on God's word all day long and still gather more truths. So there'll be more truths within that section, but you have to understand that all of those truths are supporting and pointing to a main teaching, a main doctrine within that unit. All those various truths serve to support and make clear one doctrine which dominates the section. Okay, so of, of, of course, there will be different applications. There's a difference between interpretation and application. And so there's one interpretation. There will be a lot of applications which ba uh, based on that interpretation. And so you have to keep in mind the context, all of that, that informs you of the main point of that section where those text lands and the whole narrative of Scripture, right? This lands at a point across the whole scope meta-narrative of, of the Bible. And there's a main point there, and all these other truths within that section support it. And so you have to understand that each unit has this one truth dominating. Now, with all that being said, why I read verses 26 through 42, even though the unit is 26 through 32, is because, like I said, Luke presents Jesus' death in several subunits 
There's all these units that are put together that together make up the crucifixion narrative. And all of these must take it, be taken together or else you lose the force of the narrative. You lose the force of the crucifixion. And so similarly to what we did with the trials, we had the, the, the various points of the trials. That's what we'll do with this crucifixion. Today's cru- the crucifixion part one, the journey and those who join. Next time it will be the crucifixion part two, the, the mockery and the mercy. That's what's being shown in the next section, the, the myriad of mockeries that are coming against Christ and yet his mercy on his enemies. And then we'll see the crucifixion part three, which is the criminal's conversion. And then finally, the crucifixion part four, darkness, death, and declarations. Where Jesus dies, there's darkness, and you see these declarations of Christ and who he is. So needless to say, let me tell you this as we open these this, this month, really, this is going to be a powerful time in the life of our church. These texts describe the pinnacle of human history. These texts describe the, what is at the core of our faith. These texts des- describe what Christ has done to save sinners. And listen, let me tell you a little secret. You will be transformed and you will grow in your maturity in Christ as you become fixated on the person and work of Christ. As you become focused on Christ, you will be transformed. So today, we begin with looking at this, at this wonderful picture, this horrific picture. And that's the, that's the, the dichotomy for us as believers, right? This is terrible and wonderful. Because in this horrific event, Christ is killed. And through this event, sinners are saved. This is the journey. Now, let me tell you and start here. The journey to the cross really began a long time ago. The journey to the cross began before creation. Revelation uh, uh, 13.8 calls Christ the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. Meditate on that for a little bit. Acts chapter 4 says this was what God had planned and predestined to take place. And so Christ here is obeying the Father. He's obeying the Father all the way to his death. You have to understand, this is the Father's plan to crush his Son. Isaiah 53 says this is the Father's plan that he was pleased. Listen, listen to me. That he was pleased to crush his Son. He was pleased to crush him. And to do so, to save sinners. Listen, it's not just because evil men kill Christ that makes him a sacrifice for sin. That has nothing to do with it. That's the hands by which it is done. It is because the Father sacrifices his Christ and pours out his just wrath upon his Son for the forgiveness of sin, upon this innocent lamb who becomes the the one who takes our place, the innocent sacrifice who takes the place that we are forgiven of our sin. God has a morally sufficient reason to do this. Therefore, he is not guilty. He's doing this for the good of his own glory, for the good of those who will be saved. But this is the Father's plan, and the journey began from eternity past. And the journey began, uh, continued at Christ's birth. We read about this a long time ago, right? Maybe four years ago. Someone can look it up and tell me how, how long we've been here. 
Some of you probably know it. You're counting it down. Mark 10.45, though, says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So when he was born, he came to die. John 1 tells us that the eternal word of God came into the world, but he would be rejected and he would die. Matthew 1.21 says that uh, Mary will bear a son and will call his name Jesus, which means Savior or the Lord is salvation, because he will save his people from their what? Sins. This was why this was the plan from eternity past. This journey started there. This was the plan that the journey continued at his birth, which is why I think it's wonderfully appropriate and meaningful and instructive that the Lord in his great providence has us in these crucifixion narratives during Christmas, during the Christmas season, because we can see clearly the reason for Christ's birth was his death. And so this reminds us that Christ was born to die, but that journey continued. And that journey continued at his birth. And then in roughly 30 years, for roughly 30 years, Jesus was in a little town called Nazareth. Nazareth. We don't know much about that season of his life, but he knew he was on a journey. He knew he was on a one-way journey to his death. And during that time in Nazareth, Jesus grows up. And at 33, Luke 3, 23 tells us, at 33, when Jesus was 33, Jesus began his ministry. And in his ministry, the journey went like this. He proved his messiahship. We saw that for about the first nine chapters of Luke. Then on the journey narrative, the first journey, the longer journey, from uh, all the way till, till about Luke, I think, 19, there's a journey where he trained his disciples, so he proves his messiahship. Peter says, you're the Christ. Boom, it's established. Then the journey narrative, training the disciples, rebuking the false teachers of Israel. He ends up in Jerusalem, not far from Bethlehem, by the way, which is where he was born. And now here we are, and it's 6 a.m. Friday. The journey has culminated in this moment now. It is the Passover, and Luke is going to show us the picture that this journey is now coming to an end. This is the last leg of the journey. This is the last leg of the journey. This is 6 a.m. Luke tells us that Jesus is going to die between noon and 3 because it's the um, sixth hour. Sometimes uh, we saw that earlier, 6 a.m. said sixth hour. Sometimes six hours meant for 6 a.m. Other times when, when the writers used the sixth hour, we can understand it as noon. So at 6 a.m., he's at Pilate's being finally convicted. And by noon, between noon and three, Jesus is going to, to die. And uh, he's going to be buried before sundown. He's going to be in the tomb for three days, not 23, 24-hour periods, but touching three days. And uh, he'll be in the tomb Friday before sundown. And um, Saturday all day, which is amazing because on the, um, on the Sabbath day for the Jews, Jesus will rest because he has completed his work. And then he will rise early Sunday morning. And uh, John 20 tells us he'll do so while it's st still dark on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. And all of this has been planned 
from the beginning. And we are now on this last leg of Jesus's journey where he is officially headed to the cross. Luke moves us along this, this short half mile trip from Pilate's palace in Fort Antonia to Golgotha. And in Aramaic, this is called the place of the skull. And in Latin, anybody know? Calvary, which in Latin means skull. And so this is Calvary. This is Golgotha. In Aramaic or Hebrew, it's called Golgotha, a place of the skull. And in Latin, Calvary means skull. And Luke is moving us through this by telling us who's with him. This is the journey. And he's pointing out those who join. Who joins? Five points. Number one, we'll see the culprits in verse 26a. Secondly, we'll see the Cyrenian in verse 26b. Thirdly, we'll see the crowds in verse 27a. Fourth, we'll see the criers in verse 27b through 31. And then lastly, we'll see the criminals in verse 32. It's amazingly clear. Luke shows us he left Pilate's, he arrives, we're on the journey, and he just moves us from person to person. And what's interesting about all these people is they really represent a picture of various responses to Christ. Various responses to Christ. Which is why I said earlier today that there will be a myriad of responses to Christ. Some will turn to him and be saved. Some will turn away from him and it will end in destruction. They will be destroyed. So let's start with the culprits. Verse 26, verse 26a. Let's read it. And as they led him away, Let's stop there. We got a long road here, okay? We got a long journey. But we have to stop there. Because it says, and they led, and as they led him away, who's, who's they? Well, there's an antecedent that the, that the pronoun refers back to. And if we go up back to verse 13, we find the antecedent. Pilate called together the who? Chief priests and the rulers and the people. And so we see that they refers to these leaders. We've already seen them, the chief priests, Annas, Caiaphas, the rulers, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes. It included the Roman soldiers, the Herodians, and the people, those who were um, outright haters of Christ. It's a mixed bag here when it talks about the people. People who, who are outright haters, people who are just curious. And those, the majority of the Jews, uh, Christ did not meet their expectations. They had an expectation of who the Messiah would be, who the Christ would be, and he fell short of these expectations. And they thought that he would come and relieve their burden from Rome, destroy their enemy, the Romans who oppressed them, when in fact Christ was coming to to relieve them from the burden, to free them from the oppression of sin, and to save them spiritually, to give them right standing with God. So they, they couldn't understand how their Messiah would die. 
And they didn't understand their own sinful condition and their need to be saved. And so Jesus, to these people, to this group, to the culprits, to the ones who are leading him away from Pilate to Golgotha, Jesus is a threat to these people. We've seen this over and over to the, in the book of Luke. They've gotten what they've wanted through the trials. Remember their last cries? Remember their last cries? Look at verse 22. A third time, Pilate said to them, what evil has this man done? I found nothing deserving of death. I'm gonna punish and release him, but they were urgent. Remember the word was like a storm and they were, they were crying out. They were crying out about Christ. They were shouting, I'm sorry, verse 21, crucify, crucify him. Verse 23, they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed. And so this is, these are those who are, have gotten what they wanted. They've manipulated, they've been angry, they've hated Christ, he is a threat. He's a threat to their self-righteousness. He's a threat to their position. He's a threat to their power. He's a threat to their authority. And uh, they want him eliminated. And we've seen that. Um, the the self-righteousness, that is that God accepts them just the way they are by their works. Now, let me just tell you something, just a side note here. Um, Self-righteousness, when we talk about self-righteousness, we often think that it just refers to those who are super religious. But can I tell you, self-righteousness manifests itself in liberalism, in legalism, in Catholicism. Self-righteousness manifests itself in various beliefs. The liberal, just positive love, no, no uh, clear teaching on sin or the depravity of man, is self-righteous because that man believes that God accepts and loves me as I am. That's self-righteousness. Rather than I am at enmity with God, as Romans 5 says, Ephesians 2 says, Romans 1 said, and I need to be literally given righteousness through Christ. If, 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 so this is Pelagianism or, or semi-Pelagianism that, that dumbs down the depravity of man, our sinful nature, our human condition. And then we have no need to be saved. And with that, we oftentimes don't think about it, but that's self-righteousness. Then, of course, there's legalism. The earn right standing with God through the ability to keep God's law. And there's Catholicism, a system of sacraments and traditions and works, all of which points to a self-righteous system, of course. And this is what Israel's leaders were. They were self-righteous, unaware of their sinful condition, thought they were righteous because of their lineage with Abraham, that they could keep the law. And the Messiah for them was only a threat. And so killing the Messiah they tried to vindicate their own righteousness by eliminating him. And so they're the ones leading this heinous crime. Verse 26 says they led him away. And let me, let me just show you this. Verse 26, and they led him away. Now jump down to verse 33. And when it came to the place that is called the skull, there what? They crucified him. These are the ones who kill Christ. 
There's no way to make this pretty. There's no positive tone within any of this. This is the worst act in history. The infinitely righteous Christ being killed by sinners. And so this is, these are the culprits. Secondly, we see the Cyrenian, the Cyrenian. As they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid him on the cross to carry it behind Jesus. They seized this man. What does this mean? Well, it means that the Roman soldiers, no doubt here, did this work. They had control. They had authority. And, and, and those, they were the ones um, who Matthew says it this way, that they compelled this man to do it. And so they seize this one. And, um, and as I mentioned last week, as I showed us last week, the scourging of Pilate was so bad that Jesus was unable to bear his own cross. That speaks about how terrible the scourging of Pilate was, which was supposed to be, you know, a mercy. I'm going to scourge him and release him. And it was so terrible that Christ couldn't even carry his own cross here. And so this highlights the humanity of Christ, right? That he's fully God, but he's fully human. He had to be fully man in order to die on behalf of man, right? And so they seize this one. Who did they seize? Well, they seize this one whose name was what? Simon. And there's a lot of intentionality here. So listen up. Luke gives the name Simon, and then he gives where this man is from, which is where? Cyrene. And this is unique because Luke doesn't do this for many people. He doesn't name the crowds. He doesn't name most of the criminals. He doesn't name the, even the centurion soldier who, die, uh, who, who, uh, who believes later on, right? But there's more here. You have to understand. So Jesus is scourged so badly. They're growing impatient because he's probably moving so slowly. So they, they seize Simon of Cyrene to help carry it. And I'm going to tell you how we know that that was probably the case in terms of trying to hurry Christ along in a minute. But let me tell you here, because we're introduced to this man and where he's from, but the Bible tells us even more about Simon of Cyrene. In Mark chapter 15, verse 21, Mark tells us in his parallel account that Simon of Cyrene was also the father of Rufus and Alexander. Alexander and Rufus. So Luke, Matthew, and Mark tell us that this Simon was from Cyrene, which if you know where Cyrene is, if you can look at it on the map, I think I actually have it. Uh, I don't know if it's up. There it is. You see Cyrene there, um, down left-hand corner, and um, it's in uh, North Africa, uh, which now Libya or, or Tripoli, and uh, that's where he would come from this Simon, and he would come all the way to Jerusalem, which you see bottom right, in order to worship for the Passover. To, to, like all devout Jews, he would come to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, what's incredible, and you can take that off, but just so you kind of picture that in your mind, in Acts chapter 6, verse 9, right, um, we're, we're told something, okay? And I, I don't have time to turn us there, um, but, but you can just make that a reference and you can go look at it later, 
Okay, Acts chapter 6, verse 9, we're told that there was also a synagogue in Jerusalem. And this synagogue in Jerusalem was made up of the Cyrenians. Okay, so, so in Passover, the Cyrenians would come to the, the devout Jews would come and they would uh, perform their rituals for the Passover. They established a synagogue there in Jerusalem so when they come, they could worship with their own, with their own people. And, um, and so, so these, these people would come. Now, let me tell you also this. In Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, when the, everyone heard the gospel in their own what? Language or tongue so that the gospel could be taken back, there were present there Cyrenians. And so they heard the gospel there. They were Jews who were in Jerusalem for the Passover. They would go back. Now, as we look at this, I want to point out some things. Simon of Cyrene comes in from the countryside, and Luke is making a significant point here. He's making a significant point here that Simon is not part of the mob who arrested Jesus. He's not part of the mob. He was not part of the three trials. He wasn't part of the people who hated and manipulated and yelled during the civil trials. He wasn't part of the ones who were leading Jesus to the cross. In fact, he's probably never even heard of Jesus because he's been in Cyrene and he's coming here now for the Passover. This is the Friday, the day of preparation. Undoubtedly, he's coming into the city for his preparation. So Luke tells us this purposefully. He was just coming in from the country. Can you imagine that? What luck, huh? You're coming in from the country and all of a sudden you see Jesus carrying the cross and the Roman soldier seizes you and tells you to help carry. And so this is, this is what's happening. Now, he doesn't even know that God's lamb here is being prepared to be sacrificed on the day of preparation, God's final lamb. And so here's what happens. They seize him and they, Luke says here, he carries the cross behind Jesus. And so this just gives us clarity. Jesus is so beaten and bruised, he can't carry the whole thing. But by Roman law, the, the one who is to be crucified has to carry his own cross. It's part of the shame. It's part of the, it, it's, it's part of the shame of crucifixion. And so John 19, 17 tells us that Jesus bore his own cross. And so you put these things together and it's pretty clear. It makes a lot of sense. Jesus was bearing the cross full of shame, beaten and bruised, couldn't carry it all the way. And so Simon of Cyrene also comes behind Jesus. He's seized and he's carrying kind of that back end of the cross. And Jesus has the crossbar. Simon has a long rear. And it's because probably dragging, bumping on the ground, Jesus is too, too hurt to carry it. Now, I want to tell you something. This is amazing. This is amazing. Because this is the first of only three characters that were told in the crucifixion events that become believers in Christ. These, this is one of the three. And you think about that. You think about the many who reject. You think about the few who accept. This is probably one of the men, one of the three, who becomes a believer in Christ. We are told of him, we're told of the criminal, and then we're told of the centurion when he's on the cross. 
And so no doubt here, we have something very meaningful. Now I wanna tell you something. Remember when I told you Mark mentions Rufus, his son, right? Mark mentions Rufus, his son. Well, Mark wrote to who, do you know? Who was his audience, Jews or Gentiles? And so Rufus, he mentions Rufus. Why would he mention Rufus by name and not only Simon by name? Well, probably because within the Gentile church, Rufus was also known. And so he's probably known in the Gentile world. Now, I'm not going to turn you there, but Romans, actually, let me turn you there for just a second. Just turn to Romans chapter 16, verse 13, because this is very, very interesting. Romans chapter 16, verse 13. And look at this. It says, verse 13, greet who? Rufus. There he is. He's in a Gentile church in Rome. And so this is pretty clear. And by the way, Paul makes mention of Rufus here, but he also makes mention of who? Rufus's mom, who was like a mother to him. That would be Simon's wife, if this is the same Rufus, which it probably is. And so, so this is Simon's son and Simon's wife. Simon's wife was like a mom, like a spiritual mother to the apostle Paul. And it makes sense because let me tell you something. In Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 21, listen close, okay? This is, this is, this is wonderful. If you listen close and, and hear what I'm saying here, in, Luke, in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, right, there's Jewish converts from Cyrene who go to Antioch and produce Gentile converts. There's Jewish converts from Cyrene who go to Antioch and produce Gentile converts. In Acts chapter 13, there's one pastor who's a Cyrenian in that church in Antioch because he stays there. And so let me put this all together for you. Here's, what's, here's how this is all put together. You ready? On the journey, we observe in this crucifixion, Simon of Cyrene, who's chosen by the Roman guards to help Jesus carry the cross, right? And he's very much chosen by God. God's in control. This is not just, a, you know, happenstance. And out of all the people, Simon's chosen, right? He's, and no doubt Simon stays at Golgotha when Jesus is being crucified. You don't help carry up the cross and say, hey, good to help you, and I'll see you later, right? He undoubtedly stays and is probably saved there. During the events of Pentecost, then just a little while later, the apostles by the Holy Spirit pre preach the gospel and there's Cyrenians who are converted. And so now these Cyrenians who are converted in, Gen in Jerusalem probably go back uh, to, Cy to Cyrene with Simon, these, these converted Cyrenians at Pentecost and Simon, who's a Cyrenian convert. They go back to Cyrene and they preach the gospel to their people. And there's more converts. And then later on, there's missionaries. We know this because I, uh, I just referenced it from Acts. Missionaries sent from Cyrene who are scattered because of persecution. They go to Antioch. Simon is probably involved there because how does Simon's son get connected with a Gentile church? They produce Gentile converts in Antioch 
which Simon is probably there where he comes to know Paul, where Simon's wife begins to take care of Paul as a spiritual mother in the Lord, where his son meets other Gentile converts and they make friends. And Simon's son, Rufus, probably hooks up with one of them and ends up in the church in Rome. And now Paul's writing to Rome and saying, hey, greet Rufus and his mom. I mean, this is an incredible story. This is an incredible story. This Simon of Cyrene is part of a huge picture. In this moment, God is sovereignly working for his gospel to go forth through this event while there are culprits who are trying to murder the Son of God. And the gospel will spread because this one man and the rest of the Cyrenians who are saved at Pentecost will bring the gospel back to their home. And then they'll scatter because of persecution, start a church with the Gentiles, And Simon will probably stay there. His son will end up in the church of Rome. Paul will write to him. God is at work. God is at work here. And this is wonderful. And so what we see in this dark hour that we are not only seeing the many who are rejecting and leading Christ to his death, but we are seeing the few, the remnant, the one who comes to know Christ through this terrible event. Well, Got a few more here. The rest of them are pretty short, but we got the crowd. We've got the crowd. Not only the culprits, not only the Cyrenian, but the crowd. You see how wonderful this is? I mean, Luke is just really moving us through this journey from person to person. And there followed him, what, a great multitude of people. And then he's going to talk about some women, and then he's going to talk about two criminals. He just wants us to know who's with him on this journey. And so here we got it in verse 27a. Verse 27a, he says, and there followed him a great multitude of of people. This group would just consist of, I'm just going to mention this, consist of curious, like I said, those who were chanting for his death, Jerusalemites and pilgrims who were coming in during this time for the Passover. Some of them were indifferent to Jesus. Some Some of them were indignant against Jesus. People were cheering, remember, at his triumphal entry, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then here in this chapter, they're yelling, what? Crucify. Chance change. They're not who, he's not who they expected. This is a mix of superficial interest and hatred. The fact that Luke groups this together with the multitudes, not giving any specifics here. And uh, look at verse 48. Just move ahead in the chapter to verse 48. And the crowds... So we see something more about them later had assembled for this spectacle. When they saw the take, what took place, they returned home beating their, their breasts. So why did they come? They came for the what? Starts with an S. Spectacle. And when they returned, they went beating their breasts. You know what? Beating their breasts literally translated the word mourning. Mourning. When, when we see that in scripture, it's, it's a beating of the breast. It's a mourning because of the horrific spectacle because they just watched something awful. But he doesn't meet their standards. He's not liberating them from Rome. We have the multitudes. Now let's move to the criers. Let's move to the criers. At the end, I'm gonna pull this all together, but let's move to the criers. Now you say, who are the criers? What are you talking about here? Well, you got these women then, verse 27b, who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves 
and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren, are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen to uh, when it's dry. And then you see verse 32, he introduces the two criminals, which is the last. But we see these criers. Now, why are these women distinct from the crowds? Well, there's a reason for this. These, this they're mourning and lamenting. And, um, and so they're mourning and, and lamenting. Uh, Koptomai in the Greek means, it means that it's a public pe- beating of the breasts. And so they're lamenting. Um, and... Uh, and the, this, is, this is the same, we see the same picture when they're singing a dirge, which means, you know, the, the, Jesus said, you know, he gave an example again about how disappointed the people were about him. They say, you sing and he, he doesn't dance. They sing a dirge and he doesn't cry or, or lament. You know, Jesus isn't doing what the people wanted, but they would sing dirges in this just poetic crying right? It was kind of a professional crying that would take place. And so this is not as sincere, as, as much as sincere as it, as it is customary. These are professional mourners. These are professional criers. This is habit more than substance. And uh, this, there was a religious value attached with doing this. And uh, these are not the women that you would come to know, right? Mother of, uh, of Jesus and Mary Magdalene, right? John 19 tells us that those women show up later, and uh, there's the mother of Jesus who's Mary. There's Mary's sister, who's Jesus's aunt. There's another Mary, and then there's Mary Magdalene. So there's four Marys. That's a lot of Marys, right? Um, three Marys. But, uh, but that's, they show up later. And so these women are here, and these are professional criers. They're professional mourners. They're singing dirges. It's this, this is... Uh, poetic um, crying that's taking place and beating of the breast while Jesus is walking along this journey. And uh, these are the only people that Jesus speaks to on the journey. And so he does so to make a point here. Look at verse 28. He says, but turning to them, but contrary to what they're doing, Jesus doesn't want them doing what they're doing. But Jesus turns to them and said, daughters of Jerusalem, which by the way is a phrase just used in Zechariah 9.9. It simply just means the people of Israel. We see it in Zechariah 9.9. He calls the people of Israel daughters of, the daughters of Jerusalem. And he says this, and this is in command form in the Greek. He says, do not weep for me. Do not weep for me. This is not rhetorical. This is a command. This is a rebuke. And what Jesus is saying here is, I'm not the one who needs your sympathy. He is saying here, I mean, Jesus knows he's being obedient to the Father. He will suffer the penalty that was planned for him. He will raise from the dead and he will be seated at the right hand of God. He is saying here, you are the ones who are in trouble. This is why this is clear that this is not sincere by these women because he says, weep for who? 
yourselves. And not only that, but weep for your children. Jesus is speaking here of judgment for rejecting the Messiah. And this is just clear. There's no, I mean, I'm just gonna make it just clear to you, but it is just crystal clear. He says this, here's the reason. Look at verse 29. For, that's the grounds of what was just said. Behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, verse 30, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Now what Jesus is referring to, it's clear, this is not final judgment, but it's, it pictures final judgment. Jesus is referring to where the nation of Israel is headed immediately, which is to destruction. And we know that he's referring to the events that take place in AD 70. Um, the days are coming. And in the Greek, these are key days of God's activities that are, that's approaching imminently. They're coming soon. And Jesus says that they're gonna be destroyed. And this is what happened. The Jews were overthrown by, do you know who? Rome. And Jesus is saying here that that is an immediate judgment of God for rejecting the Christ, for rejecting the Messiah. You remember how just as God used the Egyptians, the father used the, the Babylonians, he used the Assyrians as vessels of his judgment on his people for their idolatry. And so Jesus refers to this, to this um, earlier. Remember when Jesus is entering into Jerusalem and, um, and they're all joyful, superficial in their praise, Hosanna, 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 right? And what is Jesus' response? Just turn to Luke 19. Turn to Luke 19. We're almost done here. Luke, turn to Luke 19, verses 41 through 44. He speaks of the same event here, he, and he uses the same language. Luke 19, 41 through 44. When he drew near and saw the city, he what? He wept over it. He is doing there what he's telling the women to do in chapter 23. Saying this, that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies, that's Rome, will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your, what? Children with you and they will not leave a stone upon another because, here's the reason, look, you did not know, what? the time of your visitation, when God came to earth. When the Christ came to provide salvation. You didn't know that time. You didn't recognize it. Because of their rejection of Christ, God in the flesh, the messianic fulfillment. And so... During this time, verse 29 says, all the normal patterns of blessing are gonna be reversed. People are gonna say, behold, the days are coming when the, they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore. That's reversed of what the Jews value and think. They believe that if you're barren, you're cursed. 
And if you bear children, you're blessed. We've seen that in Sarai, Hannah, and Elizabeth. But then the Israel women will say, I wish we had never bore children. This is a different beatitude. Blessed are you who don't have any, right? And in verse 29, the reason being is they're gonna think to themselves, it's better to be familyless, childless, wombs that never born, breasts that never gave a suck, literally, than to have the children ripped from you and destroyed. This is exactly what he's saying here. And it will be so great, verse 30, it says, that people will desire to end their lives quickly with something less painful, namely mountains falling on them. And Jesus is quoting here, this is clear because Jesus is quoting here from Hosea chapter 10, verse eight, which is another time that God used an evil nation to destroy his people for rejecting him. He's literally quoting here from Hosea chapter 10, verse eight. That's when the Assyrians destroyed Israel. And then there's also a future aspect to this though. Make no mistake that there is, this is also a symbol of what is to come for those. This is literal, but this is also a picture of what is to come in the future. So this happened past during the days of the prophet Hosea to the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, there's a northern kingdom and there's a southern kingdom. Southern kingdom was made up of two tribes. The northern kingdom was made up of 10. They had zero good kings, zero. And so God used an evil nation to destroy them and Jesus is quoting them in this moment. But then in the future, so you got that, you got this picture here for rejecting the Messiah and then Revelation speaks of the same thing. In the future, it's another citation of Hosea, Revelation 6, 16. What's this future sixth seal of the tribulation period? And this, when this comes, they will say again, mountains fall on us. And that's a picture of, of this what starts this final judgment. And it says, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face. And, and here's where we see the reason again. Just listen, we're almost done. Here's where we see the reason again. Calling to the mountains and the rocks. This is Revelation 6, 16. They say, fall on us from the face and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. So in all three of these pictures, it's clear that this is judgment for rejecting God, Yahweh and the rejection of Christ. And this is judgment. And Jesus is saying, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves because you've rejected me. That's the picture here. And so in verse 31, if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? Jesus is just making a point. He's pressing in the point here. He's saying of this specific event, if the Romans treat me like this, an innocent person who is full of life and eternal fruit, even though it's working in your favor, if they treat me like this, it's kind of like, hey, your friend gossips about uh, other people when he's with you. What do you think he's gonna do when he's, when, you know, he's with others, right? He's saying, if they're treating me like this, the one who is eternally innocent, how do you think they're gonna treat you 
when I'm gone. Who, those who are guilty, that's the dry wood, Israel being the dry wood, Christ being the one who's full of life. And um, there's gonna come destruction. So we see the culprits, the Cyrenians, the crowd, the criers. Let me just mention the last ones because I'm not gonna even talk much about this because um, it's coming up here in a couple of weeks, but we got the criminals. I mean, he just turns now, he says, two others who were criminals were led away to, put, to be put to death with him. And then again, verse 33, now they're there. The journey's over. So verse 32, there's the two criminals. And I'm not gonna say anything about them because we just know they're with him on the journey. But verse, when we get to verse 39, we're gonna focus on them completely. Just know that they're there. Suffice it to say that one of them will be converted and the other one will reject Christ. In conclusion, church, listen now. This is the journey. This is the first of several stages of the crucifixion. From Pilate to Golgotha, Luke moves us along this narrative through people. And what we see in this is that Jesus is in complete control. We see God's sovereign hand we see Jesus' humanity. We see Jesus as the innocent lamb who's obeying the Father. We'll soon see the mockery of the bystanders, Christ's mercy, his saving power for those who repent. But today, in this narrative, we see these people. And we see the variety of responses. We see the variety of responses. We see the culprits who Jesus is just a threat to their lives. They want him eliminated. We see this one who will eventually become a believer in Christ. This one who will eventually become a believer in Christ and be used by Christ to reach the nations. We see the crowds who just vacillate, indecisive, indignant. We see the criers, the ones who professionally mourn, but... There's no substance to their claims. We see a couple criminals, one of which who will repent and be saved and one who will reject Christ. And so we see this majority and we see this minority. And I wanna just end with this. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter seven. Thanks for your patience today. Matthew, Matthew chapter seven, we had a lot packed into this service, didn't we? It's a special service for Lauren and so... I know our timing is a little bit late, but this is the best place you can be. Matthew chapter seven, verse 13. It says this. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are what? Many. That's what we just saw, isn't it? For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are what? Few. I pray that you'd be among the few and you'd experience Christ's salvation. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning thankful for the clarity and the just illuminating work of your word that changes us from one degree of glory to another. 
I pray for our church, Lord. I pray that we would be the people who are among the few, the ones who are saved and are used by you to reach the nations, the ones who, though we have every reason to be guilty, just like the criminal will be, and we've sinned against you more than we even think that can be forgiven, that we would experience salvation and be amazed that you could save us. Lord, I pray that we'd be among the few who enter through the narrow gate. It's hard because we have to repent from our sins. We have to turn away from ourselves. We have to submit to your word. We have to believe we're among the minority. So few find it. But we don't want to be among the many. The crowds, the culprits, the professional mourners and criers. It's the religious, the self-righteous, and those who reject you, those who vacillate. Let us be among the few, Lord, who follow you with all of our hearts. Thank you, Christ, for this great work. We're excited to continue this journey with you through your text as we lead up to your death. We're thankful for it. In Jesus' name, amen.